So real quick, catching up. Last week we were in Luke 21, and we were talking about Jesus approaching the temple. So he's been making his way to Jerusalem. He finally gets there. He's at the temple, and everybody's like, look at this. Isn't this amazing? It's beautiful. And Jesus is not impressed. He's more concerned with what's going on inside the temple and what's going on inside people's hearts. And so he's got some choice words to say to them. And we end, uh, we end that chapter with basically being told the religious leaders are wanting to kill him. They're like, we've had enough of this guy. He knows what's coming. This is his final week on this earth. So that's where we find ourselves in this situation here. It also happens to be the week of the Passover. And so Jesus wasn't the only one with his friends making his way to Jerusalem, but any person who considered themselves a devout Jew was making their way to Jerusalem to take the Passover meal. And that's where we find ourselves. Jesus taking the Passover meal with his friends, and we'll dive into a little bit this morning, what does that actually mean? And it has a little bit to do with why we're set up somewhat differently this morning, okay? As you've noticed, there's a bottle of wine at each table. It is non-alcoholic uh, because, one, it's 10 a.m. And also, two, we're going to be taking four cups this morning, and I'll explain why in a moment. And I didn't want you guys leaving here, getting pulled over, like, sorry, Asifer, my pastor got me drunk. But I didn't want that to happen. All right, read with me, and if you're able to stand in reverence for God's word, Luke 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's word. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive your word this morning. God, that we would be transformed 
by your word that we would be conformed more into the image of your perfect son. God, that our hearts would grow in affection for you and would be turned toward you, your glory and your goodness. And God, that we would be empowered by your spirit as we are sent out of this place this morning to be a good news people to the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. We are looking at the Lord's Supper this morning. This is something that we do every single week. Every week, we go to the table, right? I grew up uh, in one church that was like you had a communion Sunday. Once a month, communion Sunday. I, that was at my dad's church, and I would go to my mom's. And at that church, it was just like kind of whenever we wanted to, there would be communion. It was like whenever someone remembered maybe to bring the bread and the wine. I don't know how it worked. It was pretty flippant. Um, and that's, that's fine. We made a conscious choice to take the bread and the wine every single week. And it's because we truly believe that this is central and foundational to our faith. Not just because of the ritual, the, the sacrament, the tradition of it, but because of what it means and the story that it tells. If you've been with us with Missio, you know that we view the entire Bible as one whole unfolding story from creation to restoration in which we get to take part in that story here and today. And so this is rooted in that story. And it's rooted all the way back to the very beginning of the story in creation. And you see God's people living it out all throughout the story, and we see it here in this moment as we've continued in the book of Luke in chapter 22, when Jesus sits down to have the meal himself with his friends and his closest followers. And then we are called to continue to do it even after Jesus has left. And so why is that? What's the point? And I want to look at with this Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever you've come to know and understand this act as, this sacrament, uh, I want us to understand that at the center of it really are two ideas it's revealing to us about ourselves two things, and it's death and rebellion. It's the whole reason this meal exists. It's because of our rebellion, which has brought about death into this world. And so to kind of trace that back in the story, let me rewind a little bit, go back in the story, and help us understand what we mean by that with death and rebellion and the Passover meal. And really the whole point of our faith, coming around this meal, around this table, in recognition of our rebellion, which has brought death, and being told a story that there's a hope for something better to come, right? And it's interesting because sometimes I think we struggle with this idea of death and rebellion and something needs to be done about it. Like, at least, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I do, I struggle with that, but sometimes, uh, my kids asked me a question one time, like, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why did Jesus have to die? Right? Have you guys ever had that question before from one of your kids or thought about that yourself even? Like, why? What was, couldn't God just forgive us, right? And so I want us to think about that in context of when someone has maybe wronged us. Like, if, if, you have children and your kid does something at home or if your spouse does something that is wrong to you or if it's just someone in society has done something wrong toward you 
And you could decide to just, well, I'm just going to forgive that. I'm just going to ignore that that happened. We're just going to move forward. There's no payment or penalty or anything for this. The reality is what you're doing is you're incurring that penalty on yourself because something was done wronged. And so now you're carrying that, right? And you're going to carry that psychologically. But that happens socially too. It's not just like the psychological cost of yourself if someone wrongs you and nothing's done about it. Like let's make that bigger, okay? Let's say that there's a serial killer going around murdering people. That's wreaking havoc in our society. And the judge sits down and looks at this person and says, you know, he said he's sorry. Let's forgive him. Like you're going to let him back loose into culture, into society, where either he'll continue doing that or someone else will because they'll see that there's no penalty for this, right? So let's extrapolate that on a much bigger cosmic scale, not just psychological individually, not just social in our culture, but on a much bigger scale when you rebel against the king over all creation. There has to be a cost to that. There has to be repercussions. But even even beyond that, if you've been with us for a while, you've probably heard me say it like this before. If you rebel against the giver of life, what else is there but death? This is the one who has created life, has breathed his own breath into your lungs so that you might live, and not only has given you life, but sustains your life. And so if you turn away from that and basically spit in his face and say, I don't need you, what you're saying is I don't need or want life, right? Right? I mean, that's just logic. So right off the bat, at the beginning of the story, when God breathes his own breath into humanity, the first man and the first woman, and they rebel against him, there has to be a result of death that takes place there. And the crazy part about this story, the crazy part about this story is that it wasn't that first man and first woman that just knocked over dead right there in that instant. That God comes and he sees that now all of a sudden they feel shame and guilt and fear. And they're, they're hiding themselves from each other and from God. And what does he do even in their shame? He shows mercy on them and he clothes them. Do you remember what he clothed them with? You can go ahead and say it. What? Yeah. He clothes them with the skin, the hide of animals. Which means, it doesn't explicitly say this, but where do you get the skin, the hide from an animal, except for off of the carcass of a dead animal? There had to be a death that occurred in order to pay for what had just taken place. And this begins, this process of seeing sacrifices atoning for or paying for the sins of humanity. The creatures that were set apart from all the rest of creation meant to display the image of God to the whole world to show what he's like and then rebelled against him. And instead of the death coming directly upon us instantly, that's the end of our story. It's like God goes, hold on, I'm gonna buy us some time. The story's not over yet. It's going to continue to unfold and envelop. 
And so if we fast forward a little bit, we know that then he calls this man named Abram, who he changes his name to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, you're going to be a, a father of a nation. You're going to have many descendants coming out of your line, and you and your descendants will be my people, and I will be your God. He establishes what we call a covenant, the most deepest agreement between two parties. And he says, we're, we're making this covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then you get this really weird story. After Abraham and his wife Sarah have been waiting years and years and years for this promise of God to give them a child, well into their 90s, Sarah finally has a child. I don't even know how that's physically possible, but with God, all things are possible. They have this child, and then Abraham and his son are walking one day. Maybe you guys have heard this story. His son's told, hey, we're going to go make a sacrifice to the Lord. God told me I need to go sacrifice to him because of our sin. And they're walking, and his little boy looks up and says, we have the wood. We have what we need to make a fire, a knife. But where is the lamb? And this is the first time in the story we're introduced to the idea of this sacrifice, this animal specifically being a lamb. And I want you to hold on to that image for a second, okay? So he goes, where's the lamb? And Abraham responds with, the Lord will provide. And I'm sure inside he's thinking and he's praying, please God, provide something. Because what Abraham had been told by God was that not only did he need to make a sacrifice for his sin, but he had to sacrifice his very own son. Does anybody have a hard time when we read that story with the idea that God would call Abraham to like murder, sacrifice his son? Is it just me? That sounds crazy, right? It doesn't sound like the nice, loving Jesus that I've been told about. But listen, we, we got to understand too, like don't culturally appropriate yourselves into the situation, all right? We got to understand we're 2019 Westerners. We're highly individual. And when we aren't individual, we're thinking about our own individual family, right? And in this culture, and in this context, ancient Near Eastern was very highly communal. And you got to understand, you, you go, that doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any more right, right? Listen, we are the most highly individualized culture in the history of the world. we got to stop thinking that the rest of the world has to think the way we do. And we got to stop thinking that the Bible is speaking directly to us. And so I want us just to try to imagine the context of this right now. Because it's actually a bigger deal even than just giving up your son. It's a bigger deal than that. And in this culture that's very communal, the idea wasn't that we have today of like, you want to go out and you want to succeed. You want to do everything you can so that you can succeed. You can be on top. You can get notoriety. Like we think about that for ourselves. But in this culture, it was my family. And when you say my family, you don't just mean my immediate children, but like my grandparents and great-grandparents all the way down to my great-great-grandchildren, this lineage we want to see be built up and succeed and healthy. So that's the context. And not only that, in this culture too, 
Your hope for this to happen was found in your firstborn son. Firstborn son got the whole inheritance. Firstborn son was called to care for the mother and the father as they aged. Firstborn son was called to use that inheritance to also help establish his younger siblings. Everything for this family to succeed and to be built up and established in this community, in this world, in this culture, hinged on the firstborn son. And so when God comes to Abraham, he says, you've got to sacrifice your firstborn son, who I've promised to you, who you've been waiting for, for this great promise of becoming a great nation, I being your God, you being my people. What he's saying is that that promise really should not belong to you. You don't deserve it, and there's still a problem. It happened at the very beginning with the first man and woman, and it's happened with every man, woman, and child since, that you have rebelled against me. What should be done to you is death, not just your son, your whole lineage. Death should come upon you. Sacrifice your firstborn son because you do not deserve life without me. It's a much bigger deal than just one child. This promise of establishing a lineage and a great nation, it can't happen because you've rebelled against me. You've turned away from me and I am the one who gives life. And so they go up this mountain and Abraham, I think, would understand this as an ancient Near Easterner. What God is saying, this promise of a child I finally have received and now... I'm being told to sacrifice. And they get up there, and Abraham's about to do it. And at the last moment, just as he had prayed, I hope God provides. There's a ram caught in the thicket. His horns are caught in some bush. And God says, stop, stop, Abraham. Don't do it. I've provided another sacrifice for you. And what God is doing is he's establishing, listen, if you are willing to humble yourself before me, if you are willing to understand that you are in need, that you do not have life and a promise without me, I will provide another sacrifice so that you can be brought into life and into family and relationship with me. This son I promise you, he's yours still. This lineage I promise you, it is yours still. Because you are willing to humble yourself and do as I commanded. And he provides a ram instead of a, what did his son say? Where's the lamb, right? There's something significant about there. It's almost as if, again, God's buying time for the story of humanity and saying, listen, there will be a lamb to come, a perfect spotless lamb who will take away all sin. But for now, rams were used for Thanksgiving sacrifices, not for atonement sacrifices to be clean from your sin and your wrongdoing. And so it was essentially like, thank you, God, I don't have to make the sacrifice right now. But the sacrifice would come much later. And as the story continues to unfold, we see this transform into what becomes the Passover meal. And we'll talk about that in a second of how it got there. But before we do, I want to take our first cup. In traditional Passover meals, they would actually drink a cup of wine four times throughout the meal. And a lot of times they would mix it with water because uh, even poor people, even the poorest of poor people were commanded to, you have to drink four cups of wine. 
Not just because we, we want to have a party and have a good time, but there's a significance in every cup. And I actually have a slide to show what those all mean. And so the first cup in Hebrew, Kiddush, is the cup of sanctification. Then you have the cup of deliverance, the cup of covenant, and the cup of praise. But this first cup, they would start the meal, whoever the father or the patriarch of the family was would say a blessing, then they would bring out the food and the wine, and before they ate anything, they would take this first cup, the cup of sanctification, and it's a cup recognizing that God called Abraham to be his people and to, for him to be their God. It's this recognition of saying we were once dead. And God in his mercy came and set us apart. And he is making us into his people. That's what sanctification means. This process of transforming and renewing us into being his people. And I want us to understand that we're part of this story still today. And so we're going to take this first cup right now of sanctification. Recognizing God is calling us and making us into his own people. And so there's a bottle at each table. Go ahead and crack that open. It is uh, alcohol free. Don't worry about that, okay? If you need, if you prefer juice, I do have juice. Just throw up a hand. I'll bring some juice to you. But go ahead and pour that out for a little, just a little bit for each person. We got to get through four cups. So don't like, don't be a glutton, all right? Just, a, just like an ounce of wine. That's all you need there. And don't touch the bread yet. The bread actually comes on the third cup, so we will get there with that. And as you're pouring that cup, as you're passing around to the people around you, we're going to take it in just a moment. The band's going to come up, and we're actually going to sing a song of praise for who God is. This is how the traditional Passover meal would go as well. Not only would they drink a lot, <laughs> but they would celebrate a lot. They would retell the story of who God is and what he's done, and they would sing. They would sing hymns traditionally. And so we're going to sing right now, and at any point as we're singing, feel free to go ahead and partake in the cup of sanctification. You are so good to me, you heal my broken heart, you are my Father in heaven. You are so good to me, you heal my broken heart, you are my Father in heaven. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. I will sing again. the clouds you lead me to the truth you are the spirit inside me you ride upon the clouds you lead me to the truth you are the spirit inside me you are beautiful my sweet sweet 
Go ahead and take that first cup. And so God calls Abraham and he establishes a people. And he gives Abraham and his people this call. Not only is this for you, it might be your God and you be my people, but I am blessing you so that you will be a blessing to the other nations. And so Israel, the nation that became, was called to share the blessing of God with the world around them and to be a city on a hill, to be a light shining, to draw other people from every nation into the goodness of community with God. And as we see that story unfold throughout the Old Testament, we see that time after time after time, descendant after descendant, Israelite after Israelite, God's people continue to rebel against God. They were breaking this covenant that God had made. I will be your God, you will be my people. And they would continue to turn away from him and worship other 
false gods or themselves. And at a couple points, God speaks through these men he would call, and women even, that he would call prophets and prophetesses, and he would call them to tell either other nations about him or the nation of Israel themselves something that he wanted them to hear. And more than one occasion, God would compare Israel, his people, to an unfaithful bride or even worse, a prostitute going out and making covenant with this God or that God, this person, that person, this thing that this world has to offer, anyone but who they were supposed to be faithful to while God himself continued to pursue them and be faithful to them. And because of this, as as generations passed and generations passed, Israel as a whole nation found themselves now enslaved. They found themselves enslaved and their first slavery was to a kingdom, an empire, the Egyptians. And while they're enslaved to Egypt, they were forced to do backbreaking work. They were forced to work under terrible conditions and have very little food or water given to them. Their spirits broken and they would cry out to God, God, where are you? The God of our forefather, Abraham, would you come and rescue us? And God, faithful to his covenant commitment, does just that. And first he comes to the Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptian people who were enslaving the Israelites. And he, he tells him, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. Who is this God? You see, all the Egyptians thought that Pharaoh himself was God one of the many gods that they had. The, the son of the sun god, Ra. And so they would worship Pharaoh and he would say, who is this god of the Israelites? Do you know who I am? And his pride and his arrogance kept him from having a soft heart to be able to understand what was about to happen. And so God sent warning after warning and then plague after plague. And if you know the story, there are a series of 10 plagues that come on the land of Egypt. Each one systematically dethroning the false gods of the Egyptians. They worship the Nile and the God who would provide in the Nile River. And so God turns it from water into blood. Interesting. Keep that image in your head. And time after time, he continues to dethrone these false gods until he has to dethrone Pharaoh himself. And so the final plague, again, this tragic, horrific story that God comes and says, I will destroy the firstborn of every household. Are you seeing this pattern here? You see, what Pharaoh did back in the day, was he actually said, this nation, this people of Israel is getting to be too mighty. If they ever decide to revolt against us, then we might lose. And so what we gotta do to keep them at bay is kill the firstborn son from every Israel household so that they cannot keep growing in numbers as they are. And so God is like returning the favor. Really? Who do you, who do you think you are? to take those lives, to try to 
dethrone and to try to tear down and eradicate this people that I have called for myself, I will do that to your kingdom. And you got to understand, before this 10th plague comes, they have had chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity. But God provides a way out. You see, he says this will happen to every household throughout the land of Egypt, except for, except for the households who will sacrifice, and this comes back into our story, a perfect, spotless lamb. And take the blood of that lamb, paint it over your doorpost, and there will be a messenger of death that comes, sweeping over the land. And he even warns the Israelites, stay inside. Like, even if you got that blood on your doorpost, you better stay inside. This is serious. Someone bringing death, and you can't escape it unless you follow my orders. Paint this blood over your doorpost. When that messenger of death, death comes, it will know to pass over your home. Pass over, that's where we get the name. And this opportunity, this way out was available to anybody. Egyptian people could have done this as well. Because time after time throughout the story, we see that God provides opportunities for Israel to be a blessing to the other nations and welcome them in. And we see some people who take that offer, who get grafted into this family of Israel, so to speak. But I would imagine that most Egyptians didn't take up this invitation because, again, they worshipped Pharaoh, not the true God. And so that night, death came sweeping over the land. And every single household the next morning either had, this is the horrific scene, okay, either had a dead lamb or a dead son, including Pharaoh's own household. And finally, Pharaoh screams out, go, just get out of here. And so people of Israel, they, they t- pack up, they take everything they can, and they leave. And they had to, it's part of that meal, that preparation, there was not only the lamb involved in that meal, there was wine involved in that meal, and there was bread involved in that meal. But he told them, every time you celebrate this year after year from here on out to remember what I've done for you, how I've saved you, how I've delivered you from bondage, I want you to celebrate this meal in the same way. But he gave specific orders for that. And one of those was when you, take, when you make the bread, I want you to make it without any leaven. Like, that sounds weird, right? Like, why no leaven? Why are you eating crackers instead of a nice sourdough? And everything had a purpose, okay? It was, you don't have time. You're still on run from captivity. This This captor of yours is chasing you down, which is a symbol for us that the thing God is delivering us out of bondage from chases after us too. So he's telling you, don't don't wait for your bread to rise, okay? Just make it flour, water, salt, like you're good to go. I want you to eat it. I want you to, they would dip it in bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of their slavery. And they would eat the lamb that they sacrificed remembering that there was a cost to sin and rebellion. Death had to occur. And they get, they get free. They run out of Egypt and they're running away. And then 
Pharaoh changes his mind again. He still hasn't learned that there is a God much greater and bigger than him, much more powerful. And so he goes, you know, you know what? Wait a second, what did I just do? That's our workforce. We're gonna have to work now. No, thank you. Gets his army and they go chasing after them. And so God delivers Israel again in a mighty way. God brings them. They had a straight shot to get over to this land that God promised them, but he brings them on a detour and they get stuck in this little peninsula and the Egyptian army comes on the other side and they're trapped between water and their captors. And God does a miracle. He parts the waters and the sea and all of Israel can pass through on dry land safely. But that passageway of salvation, of deliverance, became a watery grave for the Egyptians. As they chased after Israel, the water came back swallowing them up and destroying all of them. And when they got to the other side, they started singing and praising. And Moses' sister, the one who God called to lead them out of slavery, his own sister, Miriam, or Mary, she writes this beautiful song, and she leads the people in singing a song about how God had freed them from slavery. And so they continued this pattern too. They would sing this song for years to come and they would celebrate through the Passover for years to come. And the way they would start every meal after they would bring out the food, say the blessing, take the first cup, is then the eldest son of every household would ask whoever the patriarch of the family was a question. He would say, it doesn't matter if you knew the answer. You had to ask this question. What is different about this night than any other night? And so then whoever is the head of the household would stand up and retell the story of the Exodus and the Passover and how God had saved them and delivered them from slavery. And he would retell the story about how good God is and then they would take the second cup. And so I want to now, in light of that, I want to honor that in a way where we are retelling stories of how God has been good to us. We often do this, we share what we call evidences of grace. Usually it's before the teaching, before the sermon, but we're breaking all the rules today, this morning, and that's okay, right? And so while you start pouring your second cup, I want you to share with us, whoever has something, you can just shout it out. What has God done in your lives? It could be this week, it could be whenever. Let's rejoice and remind one another how God is the God who pulls us out of slavery, out of captivity, the second cup, the cup of deliverance, that he is a God who is still at work even today. Pour your cups and somebody start sharing how God is good. I wanna rejoice over those things. God, we thank you for um, being the God who knows all things and for uh, just as, as Jen shared, being able to finally know what is going on uh, with her health. That is such a, a gift in itself. Um, we pray for ultimate healing. We know, God, that even in the midst of this broken world where there's still sin and death and, and wrong in this world and even within our own bodies, that in the midst of it, you are a God who gives us peace. Your spirit dwells within us and that you are working to restore all things, and that though we may pass through that valley of the shadow of death, we know that in Jesus we come out on the other side delivered into life eternally and fully with you. And so God, we thank you for all these stories shared just now of these little glimpses of deliverance that you've given us. 
in small and big and amazing ways. You are the God who saves and delivers. We pray you keep doing it and you will do it finally and fully one day. Amen. Go ahead and drink. So the story continues that year after year, God's people would celebrate this Passover, but they would also need to remember the significance of it. And what would often happen is, unfortunately, the day-to-day routine, and particularly as they kept finding themselves in captivity even after that, would kind of squash the significance of that. Because the significance, again, as we said, is recognizing rebellion leading to death. There's a problem, right? Really what it's calling us to is this recognition of need to humble ourselves, to confess we deserve the death of this lamb. Right? That's what we're, we're saying when we take that meal. And unfortunately, unfortunately, time after time, Israel would reject their calling to be a blessing to other nations, and instead of humility and confession and repentance, they would build up pride and arrogance. We are God's chosen people, the ones that he saved out of Egypt, he's gonna do it again because his love for us is so great and they would actually be very unloving toward the other nations around them. And they themselves would have a hard time seeing their very own sin and wickedness within their own hearts. Like last week we talked about when Jesus gets to the temple and they're like, look at this temple, how beautiful it is. It's amazing, look what we've built. And God was more concerned, Jesus was more concerned with what was going on inside of their temples, inside their own hearts. And it's amazing that even when we get to this point of the story in Luke 22, when Jesus is taking this meal as they would do, as was customary, this meal where you recognize rebellion leading to death, where you must confess and humble yourselves, Jesus is having a conversation with his followers and even on the heels of this meal, they start having an argument about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Where's the humility, the confession, the repentance? If, if we kept reading too, we would see even Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me, even you. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I would follow you to prison and to death. And Jesus is like, no, Peter. Before it's tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times in front of people. Humble yourself. You are not all that. You are just as much in need as everyone else here at this table is, including the one who is about to betray me. You're no different. He's at the table here with us too. I've welcomed him as well. But all of us are in need And this is why not only do we take the meal every week, you guys, but this is why we in our liturgy have confession. And I know for me, when we first started this, it was like, this is weird. I didn't grow up in a church that did that stuff. Like, we didn't read this stuff out loud together and say these corporate prayers. And sometimes it can feel almost stale. And I pray that our hearts would not allow it to get there. Because this is a practice we need to be familiar with to remind ourselves. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I could go throughout most of the week without confessing anything and without repenting. 
and without humbling myself. And so together, we come together corporately as a family, as a community, and we get to acknowledge a rebellion that has led to death. To humble ourselves. To recognize we deserve the death of the lamb at this table. But instead, we sit at this table and we feast and we drink. Do you see how completely amazing that is? The stark contrast between what we should be, that dead slaughtered lamb, and what we have feasting at the table. And we didn't get that change in anything we've done in ourselves. And so as the story continues, and God has promised a lamb would come one day, and you see the people of Israel continually celebrating this over and over, Jesus comes to be that final, full lamb. The perfect, spotless sacrifice. The one that Abraham prayed for so he wouldn't have to give up his own son. God himself would be the one to give up his own son. And Jesus is leading his friends through this meal. And I believe when they get to this third cup, because traditionally when they would get to the third cup, that's when they would take the bread. And Jesus has the bread at this point, And he says, I'm not going to drink this cup. We could put our, oh, you got it up there. Thank you. The cup of covenant, which was also called the cup of redemption. Jesus instead, he pours out the cup, he passes it around and he tells them, this cup is my blood, which is establishing a new covenant between you and God. Remember that first covenant set up between God and his people? Jeremiah 31 tells us that we broke that covenant and promises that God will establish a new one one day. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing of this meal, and he says, is it not the cup of the covenant that we enter into because of Christ? And so Jesus pours out this third cup, and he says, you know the the covenant? It's found in me now. I'm establishing a new covenant relationship between God and his people, and it will be through my blood. This is why Jesus doesn't drink it, because he is the cup. He goes into the garden after this meal, And he's praying, God, take this cup from me. Because the cup of redemption, the cup of the covenant for us, is a cup of affliction for Jesus. Would you take this cup from me? And yet, not my will, but yours. The humility that we are called to have in recognizing our need, Jesus the king of kings, the creator of all things, the one who reigns over all the universe shows that humility. I will submit to whatever you want me to do, Father. Blood pouring down out of his sweat. This is gonna cost him everything. And he would humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, the most humiliating, painful, horrific death you could imagine. We've had these stories of horrific scenes throughout, right? Sacrifice your own son. 
Every home throughout Egypt would have a dead lamb or a dead child. This is the most horrific scene yet in the story. That the creator and sustainer of all life, the one who is perfect and spotless, would be brutally beaten, whipped, cursed, spit on. The things that we figuratively did to God when we rebel against him, spitting in his face, they literally did to Jesus. Nailed him to wooden, splintery cross. A crown of sharp, piercing thorns into his brow. Stripped him naked. The nakedness that the first man and first woman were so ashamed of that God covered them in the sacrifice of animals. Jesus bore that nakedness on the cross. That prayer of Abraham's God, would you provide a lamb, is finally answered. Jesus becomes the bloody sacrificial lamb that we would have a life, that we would get to sit at the table. And you know, when he was on that cross, they offered him, they offered him some wine mixed with myrrh, which was a, used as a painkiller then, and Jesus refused it. He was gonna take on the full payment, the full penalty and weight and pain of our sin. Finally, someone kind of forces him with some sour wine that they dipped in a hyssop branch. And oddly enough, hyssop was the herb that they would use to coat the lamb with. And it's when he gets that cup of wine that he cries out, it is finished. Passover meal is done. The lamb has been slain. The blood has been poured out. And the question is, is it covering you? Will death, the result of our own rebellion, pass over you because of the lamb? That's the invitation that we have. And so as we go to this third cup, this cup of covenant, we get to re-enter into relationship with God because of the lamb, Christ. We also are gonna take the bread this time because as Jesus passed out this third cup, he also broke the bread and he said, I want you to take this bread. And just as the cup signifies my blood, this bread signifies my body. And you know, there are two words that could have been used in the Hebrew language for body in that moment. One of them means flesh. The other one, the word that Jesus used, soma, means your whole self. Jesus was giving his whole self to them and to you and I. He says, this is my whole self broken for you. Take it and remember me. Father, as we take this bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us that we might have life in these bodies. Take and eat. And as we take this cup, Lord, we remember your blood poured out. And as the Hebrews would mix their wine with water often, we know Jesus, as your side was pierced on that cross, blood and water flowed out together. The water of the Nile turned to blood. Jesus' first miracle, water to wine. the wine mixed with water at the table.
Jesus, you became that third cup for us. The covenant bringing us back into relationship with the Father, the redemption that we have is in you. Thank you and we praise you for your blood poured out for us. Go ahead and drink. We have a fourth cup though. Jesus took his fourth cup. His friends didn't. You know, they took that third cup and they left. They went out into the garden. And they went out into the garden. If you remember last week, actually two weeks ago, Jesus was telling them, you need to stay awake, be alert, be on the watch for the kingdom. And as they're in the garden this night of his betrayal, his friends were sleeping. And he kept going to them, can you stay awake and watch with me? And they kept falling asleep. And they didn't get a chance to take that cup then, but what Jesus was leading them into, as he said, I will not drink this again until the kingdom comes, is the same cup we're all invited to now. But we're called to be alert and watch. Be alert, not giving into the cares of this world, the distractions of this world, the things that this world has to offer to satisfy us because we will be most satisfied in him and drinking from his cup. And one day, Revelation 19 tells us, when Jesus comes to restore all things, there will be a marriage feast of the lamb. That's what John writes down as he gets a vision from Jesus himself, a marriage feast of the lamb. You know what happened at marriage feasts? This was the, when Jesus turned the water to wine. It was a party. And we will get to sit down at the table with Jesus, everything finally and fully restored. No more hurt, pain, sickness, death. No more wondering what is going on with our bodies and why we are sick. No more broken relationships. No more of our world falling apart and decaying. Jesus restoring all things the way they were supposed to be to himself as the king, the lion and the lamb, the one who is victorious over death and the one who gave himself over to death. And we will be at that feast if we are in Jesus. And we'll get to drink that fourth cup of praise forever. That will be our final cup that we'll get to enjoy eternally with him praising God for who he is, for bringing us deliverance, for calling us to be his people and sanctifying us, for keeping his covenant even when we broke it. This is good news. Are you willing to cover yourself with the blood of the lamb so that you could enter into the feast of the lamb? Here's the thing, you don't have to do much. Again, we humble ourselves in confession and repentance. We recognize that we deserve the death of the lamb, but we're invited to the table. And because Jesus became the lamb, we will be at that table. We're gonna sing two more songs now. We're gonna celebrate this beautiful story that oftentimes has been horrific throughout, but ends in glory ultimate joy, peace, wholeness. And as we do, I invite you to pour that fourth cup, to drink that fourth cup, and to celebrate a good God 
who has not let us give in to our own destruction, but has come to renew all things. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.